Plato was initiated into the greater mysteries at the age of 49. The initiation took place in one of the subterranean halls of the Great Pyramid in Egypt. The Bemben Tablet of Isis formed the altar, before which the divine Plato stood and received that which was always his, but which the ceremony of the mysteries enkindled and brought forth from its dormant state. This table, or tablet, of Isis is a key to the ancient Book of Thoth, which has survived to some extent the lapse of centuries. It teaches, in the first place, the whole constitution of the threefold world, archetypical, intellectual, and sensible. The supreme divinity is shown moving from the center to the circumference of a universe made up of both sensible and inanimate things, all of which are animated and agitated by the one supreme power represented by a threefold symbol. The table demonstrates that all is in God and God is in all, that all is in all and each is in each. In the intellectual world, all invisible spiritual counterparts of the creatures which inhabit the elemental world. First there was light, the angelic world. Out of that light were then created the invisible hierarchies of beings, which some call the stars, and out of the stars the four elements and the sensible world were formed. Thus, all are in all, after their respective kinds. All visible bodies or elements are in the invisible stars or spiritual elements, and the stars are likewise in those bodies. The stars are in the angels, and the angels in the stars, and the angels are in God, and God is in all. Therefore, all are divinely in the divine, angelically in the angels, and corporally in the corporeal world, and vice versa. Just as the seed is the tree folded up, so the world is God unfolded. Hello and good afternoon. I'm Douglas Bowles, and you're listening to 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. You can find us online at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Tuesday, the 27th of January, and we are nearing the end of our run of man shows. I hope they've been manly enough for you. If you're looking for a good way to wait out this blizzard, subscribe to SyncBook Radio on iTunes and check out all the shows that you've missed. The website is still occasionally glitchy with all our transitions, so please bear with us. February will bring another bunch of interesting shows, so stay tuned to 42 Minutes and get ready for Treefort. I've already begun booking shows for March, so click on over to treefortmusicfest.com and check out all the bands and suggest who you'd like for me to try and get for our March Music Showcase. Today, we'll be exploring the secret teachings of the Bemben Table of Isis, and we'll do so with the Sync Book Advisor to Keanu Semiotics, Bo G. Bo G is the author of The Keanu Code and a friend of the show. He appeared last summer on our spectacular World Speed Project episode, serving in his advisory role. More information about his work can be found at keanucode.com. We're very happy to have him here again today. Hey, Bo, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Excellent. Just keep busy with me. Great. So, you know, it, even though it's been six months, I'm curious. You went to the Oli Sync Summit. What was your experience like? It's hard to believe it's already been six months. Um, it was good. To be honest, I was at a low point personally, just really exhausted and had sleep deprived so I wasn't at my best but the the people that were great I mean the sync sync heads were just super nice people and uh, had some interesting discussions and hopefully made began some friendships that'll uh, evolve over the years I've been horrible about keeping up with people though um, but I look forward to uh, catching up and being more fully present next time awesome how much of it did you take in uh, good question I fell asleep, for instance, before um, Joel Alexander's video, because that was, I think, two or three in the morning when that happened, and uh, missed some of David Plate's video uh, video music compila- com- combination. But I uh, got most everything else of the presentations. Um, I mean, I just wish I had more time to talk to people, the people who were there. Did you did you make it to Radio 8-Ball? I did, yeah. I uh, Yeah, it was... I didn't realize a lot of the things that had happened 
during that because I'm not as familiar with like the whole Charlie Manson killings and things. But over the weekend, just more and more of that was unfolded, all the different synchronicities that happened within that. They're kind of on the grim side, but they were pretty interesting to see that there was that consistent symbol set within their eight ball show. Huh, yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, do you have any, so, like, that's the thing. It, it's, it was a while ago. What, what kind of memories do you take out of that experience now that it's been so long? I, uh, I mean, yeah, again, great people, and I really enjoyed Olympia. I just found the people in Olympia really nice and the environment really good in a quirky, interesting, welcoming kind of way. So the city itself impressed me a lot, and then Andras' tour around the, the tree in Olympia was pretty cool just getting to see the city in that context. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, uh, that's, yeah, just good to, good to put faces to all the names. Um, well, now, you mentioned Andros. It seems like you, you mentioned an anecdote to me as we were emailing. Um, did Andros, did you have an exchange with him about Mainly Hall? Not that much. He was over here one time when he was in town in Portland, and uh, me and, uh, and him and Ezra were hanging out, and he saw that I had an old copy of The Secret Teachings of All Ages, and he mentioned that, I forget exactly when in his life, but pretty early on he got in a copy and just vowed to read through the whole thing, and apparently he did. Um, as I've been looking through it again recently to, in preparation for this show, I realize there's so many chapters I've never even really fully tackled because it's such a dense, dense book. Right. And so, yeah, that that's great. That leads us right into uh, when did you read this book and what was the circumstance that you know caused you to enter into this? Yeah, good question. I... Uh, it was pretty soon after high school. In high school, I'd, I guess my parents had always assumed I'd go to college, and that was the assumption, but I never thought about it much. So I had, I got sick one time in high school, and then it occurred to me, I don't want to go to college, I just want to study philosophy. So pretty much after high school, I just tried to accumulate any kind of book on metaphysics that I could find. And there was this old bookstore in downtown Old Town Beaverton, out kind of near Portland. Um, and I was walking by one day and saw this copy of this mysterious-looking book with a mysterious title, The Secret Teachings, blah, 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 etc., The Man Lippy Hall Classic. And so I got a copy of that. I didn't even read much of it for many years, but then gradually I, I dove deeper into it and was just fascinated and kind of blown away by all the info. Um, and looking back, I wouldn't call it a real practical book in the sense of how to, how to evolve spiritually and whatnot, but it gives such great background on the whole Western and a few other traditions in such detail. So it's basically a synchronicity that dropped it into your lab. A little bit. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure I would have eventually run into a copy, but to run into an older copy was kind of cool because I think it was a few years after that that they started to to do reprintings of it in, in a more modern context. And then, what was your ex- you experience like this time, re-experiencing it after some time has passed? That you, what was yeah, your impression I, this time? I'm always blown away. Um, as, as I mentioned, I, a few years ago, read the biography about Manly P. Hall. That gives a whole different angle. But, uh, but just, um, just every time, even though his biography kind of makes a person question some of his fluidity, whenever I reread chapters of the book, it's just like so impressive, so scholarly, so in-depth. Um, and so that happened again this time. I mean, well, That's interesting because we haven't, we haven't done any you know, so this is like a real close reading of the text as far as the the literary ex- exercise is gone, and I haven't I haven't done any uh, very very little biographical research. What are these What are these anecdotes that you're like referring to? That's pretty fun material. I don't know. Um, I guess we could dive into that now. Uh, yeah. So Manly P. Hall. Um, and yeah, if you haven't tackled that aspect of him at all, it's really a a whole other world, a whole other side of things. I think maybe six or seven years ago, this book came out called, titled The Master of the Mysteries by Louis Sagan, whose name I might be mispronouncing, but you can find it on Amazon.com pretty easily. And as far as I know, it's still the only real biography about Manly P. Hall. Um, the author was, I think he was a journalist for many years before that in California. And then someone mentioned to him, this guy who had just died, who was apparently a real big-time person back in the day, which was Manly P. Hall. Um, and so we got curious and researched more about it, and he talked, 
he got in close with the Philosophical Research Society, if I have the name right, the main yeah. organization that Hall founded. And uh, when they saw his credentials and got to know him, they realized he was a real legit person and really taking it seriously. So they gave him access to all of Manly P. Hall's letters and personal things, and they all interviewed with him to tell them their personal remembrances. And this was pretty soon after Hall died, maybe a year or two afterwards, I believe. It's been a few years since I read that book, and I couldn't find my copy before now. So I've just been trying to remember it the best I can. But uh, yeah, fascinating book because it is like, it's almost like a mirror reverse image of Paul's writings in some ways. Um, But let's see, where to start with that? I think the book itself actually starts with describing some of the mysterious circumstances of his death. And uh, yeah, not to get too morbid, but when Hall died, I think I think uh, there was a whole bunch of mystery and controversy around his death and criminal things and some court cases, I believe, that stretched on for years afterwards. But when they found his body, it looked like it had been moved back to a bed with clean sheets. But when the police arrived, I think a few hours after he was actually dead, um, they found just loads and loads of ants, live ants, streaming out of his nose and mouth and ears, I believe. So, like, as if his head had been full of ants. And I don't think it's ever been fully explained why that happened. But there's some some clues as to why. But that's some of the weirdness that is in that book. Um, To go back, though, I mean, it talks about how Paul was born in Canada and then followed his... I think he never met his father, actually, which is interesting because he kind of had such a fatherly-type vibe to him in some ways. He's such a big, uh, looming figure, and he was a preacher for quite a while. But anyways, to get back to his childhood, I think when he was 18, he moved to California... And I believe that Bio talked about that being that he was actually searching for his mother, trying to find her. Um, found her in California, and she was involved in some esoteric things, um, particularly with the uh, Max Heindel um, Rosicrucian Fellowship that was pretty prominent in California at the time. And I don't know if you're familiar with the different Rosicrucian manifestations calling themselves Rosicrucian back in the day, but the real big one out of uh, San Jose Amorc, the ancient mystical order Rosicrucis, is probably the biggest one, but then the Golden Dawn's also been called a Rosicrucian organization and some Crowley's groups. And they're more, in some ways, more legit in terms of esotericism, but then Max Heindel was more of a, his group was more of an outgrowth of a kind of theosophical Rudolf Steiner kind of origins. But, uh, so it's debatable how entirely legit in a historical sense those all were. But he got, I think he got inspired by her and he became fascinated by esotericism. And within a year or so, it's been described as like overnight, he was suddenly a master of all these fields of esoteric and philosophical history and details. And he soon after started lecturing at, I think it was called the Church of the People there in California, and uh, was pretty impressive to people. He was, well, a good note, side note on him is he was uh, 6'4", I believe, or 6'3", so very imposing figure. Um, he was only in his, I guess, yeah, late teens or early 20s at that point, and he soon moved from being a preacher to being a minister there and then to being a pastor. And I'm assuming the Church of the People was uh, a little bit on the New Age or metaphysical side, as a lot of things were back in the early 1900s. Um, so he became more and more popular, had more and more followers. I think he made a, maybe four or five books within the first few years of his interest in metaphysics, um, somewhere on general esoteric topics, I believe, and somewhere on masonry. Um, and an interesting side note on his involvement in masonry is that his first, his two or three big books, especially on masonry, were all done way before he became a mason. I don't think he became a mason until 30 or 40 years after he got involved in all this esoteric work. And then after that, he never really wrote anything else about masonry, which I think is somewhat involved with the vows of masonry. You don't know that. The story that I heard was that he did all this work, and so they made him an honorary mason. That might be the case somewhat. I mean, he was eventually promoted all the way up to 33rd degree, which is an honorary degree. He you know, went through the usual 32 degrees of the Scottish Rite after doing the Blue Lodge degrees. And then uh, it may be that he was somewhat treated honorarily at that point. I mean, his early Masonic books, some of them were really far out about all these miraculous powers the Masons had and how they could levitate and fly and things, I believe. I might be saying that wrong because I haven't actually read his, his two main Masonic books. I think The Lost Symbol of Freemasonry is one of them. Um, I'm I'm not certain, but he definitely became a very highly regarded speaker for Masonry after he became an efficient member. And I'm sure he was friends with loads of Masons before that. Um, but to get back to his basic trajectory as he was becoming a pastor at that one church, he uh, 
he uh, had a lot of fans, and two particular fans were Carolyn and Estelle Lloyd, um, a mom and daughter who were heirs to a really uh, wealthy oil fortune at the time. And they apparently gave a lot of their money to him, uh, largely so that he could travel the world and select ancient texts and study different people and cultures in context. And uh, so he was doing all this pretty amazing hermetic esoteric work that he could have been recognized for by the Masons, among other groups. Um, yeah, I don't think the bio went super deep into his Masonic connections. It mentioned them some, but I don't think it got into the personal relations that he had with the high-ups in the organization. I could just be phasing out some memory of those details, but uh, yeah. Anyways, it was definitely, Masonry was a big part of his life at many points in any case. Um, but I can go more on into the weirdness of his life, if you like. Yeah. Um, I mean, so the, the story I was led to believe, and, you know, I've heard, like, the L.A. past, but then one of the stories I heard is that one of the reasons he was able to do, execute the secret teachings is because where he was at at the New York reading room, the public library reading room, he had access to all of these ancient documents Hmm. that were just sitting around basically gathering dust that no one was interested in. And, of course, this could be a legend. And so there's the busy world outside, and he goes inside. And if you've ever been there, it's 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 a fabulous space. It's great. And, you know, he just blocked out the, the, the modern world and entered into these ancient texts and then executed this thing over the course of a year or so. Is this a story that I <laughs> am clearly wrong about? Well, you're talking in particular about the uh, Secret Teachings book and his studies for that. I hadn't quite gotten to that stage yet. I think I think at that point he had, that was when he was 27, I believe. So there was... 26, 27, yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, around eight or ten years between when he got interested in these topics and then when he made that book. And I think the research he did for that was in a fairly uh, contracted amount of time, maybe a, a couple of years or so, maybe maybe more. But he'd already been studying and traveling the world and selecting texts, too. So um, he definitely, though, did very much isolate himself in terms of his focus. And he had just he had to have just a super amazing mind, like a steel trap. I think he had great photographic memory. So all these various texts, he could remember who the authors were and what the quotes were. And I think that's part of why he's been criticized for not fully um, notating all of his sources in his books. I mean, he has so many sources that would have been made the book a lot, a lot huger. Well, so that, that's a question. You you seem to have quite a bit of familiarity with him. What do you make? I mean, this is one of the things that I keep bringing up is that he wrote the secret teachings as a very young man. I mean, 27, yeah. which is yeah, different amazing. than when he was in his 70s and 80s doing all these lectures, excuse me, lectures. Yeah. Um, do, what What kind of tonal difference do you get between his early work and his latter work? Is it similar? Or is it quite different? I believe that pre-Secret Teachings of All Ages, like his books, like the ones on Masonry, might have been a bit more far out. From what I've read, they kind of were. They were a little less scholarly, a little more making amazing claims about miraculous powers. Um, again, I'm not certain if that's entirely the case, but I think that's the trend. His post-Secret Teachings of, ages, of the Ages, nothing quite compared to that. Um, some were really popular, like The Secret uh, Destiny of America, or however that, whatever that title is. Yeah, that's right. Um, but I think he elaborated on themes in his later books. He made a lot more pamphlets and things. Uh, and, yeah, he was speaking throughout. I mean, I was reading just today that he gave about 8,000 8, lectures during his life, which is crazy. Yeah. I mean, and just the secret teachings book, I mean, if I spend my whole life trying to make a book like that, even though we have more resources of info these days, I don't know if I could do it because it's just such a brilliant book. And I think he did that just a few years at younger than 27. It's just crazy. Um but uh, yeah, so the the tone of his books changing, I I couldn't, I'm not, I haven't read enough of them to fully say, but uh, that's my general take is that they were a little more flimsy on evidence early on and they got super serious with the secret teachings and then they got, um, it was more just extrapolating things in his later works. Um, but yeah, uh, so he, uh, yeah, I think, I forget exactly when he formed the Philosophical Research Society, but it could have been around when he made the book or soon afterwards. I think you've convinced me to try and chase down this guy who wrote the, the biography just to, to take the, the series the next step. 
you know? Yeah, I mean, if you're, if you, I think he'd be willing. I, I don't know. Is it okay to mention other podcasts on this show? I'm assuming it is. Sure. Um, the Occult of Personality podcast is where I originally heard about him. That was he was interviewed on there several years back, and that's probably still accessible. To check yeah, out. the book came out in 2008. It looks like. Okay. Or, it as far as I can tell, maybe this is a an, yeah, another version. Right. But so, yeah, it definitely seems to be worth looking into because we've spent so much time <laughs> we yeah. spent so much time and it, the thing that it's funny the thing that i keep realizing is that when i ask people the question they're like oh yeah i definitely i was really this is one of the first things you know this is like for a lot of people this is kind of the beginning of the the, the, the journey like the, the yeah, initial, yeah exactly so like in my mind there's something to the, those connections, 9-11, and then the occult, and then Manly P. Hall is kind of their doorway into that realm. Tell us about some more of the weirdness. So, yeah, let's uh, let's go into, a little into his personal life. Um, so, I guess a little blurry in my memory after he made the secret teaching, because that really was the pinnacle, of, in my mind at least, of his career. But he was a super celebrity at that point. He became world famous rather than being a enthusiastic metaphysical California preacher. Um, super respected in lots of fields, still went around world, more world travel and collected more rare text and alchemical documents. But his marriage, his first marriage, apparently was not so great. He married his secretary, who had been a secretary for five years, and I think they were together for 11 years. And it actually ended with her death. Um, I forget her name right now, but she uh, was, I think she dealt with depression a lot of the time, and she um, ended up actually killing herself by a uh, the right term, uh, with the carbon dioxide from the car, I think, the uh, gas. Yeah. So she, uh, a tragic death, and uh, and so it shows that on his personal life, things may not have been totally smooth. I think he probably tried to help her a lot, but it can be tough to if someone's dealing with depression, especially back in those days. Um, another weird thing is, I think pretty soon after he printed his Secret Teachings book, well, like I mentioned, he was uh, 6'4", or so in height, so an imposing figure, but then after that, around the time he... He may have always had an addiction or not able to resist uh, chocolate cake, but that book did point out he really just couldn't resist eating a chocolate cake or other snacks like that. So he, And then he also had his thyroid removed for some reason around that point, some health issues they didn't know how to deal with besides removing his thyroid, which, as you may know, his thyroid is one of the main factors controlling metabolism. So the combination of his continuous snacking and having fairly unlimited funds, um, along with his thyroid being gone, he turned pretty giant pretty Quick. I don't know if he got up to two, 300 pounds or what, but pretty big. Um, going back even further in his life to before he was born, different theories about who he may have been reincarnated from, uh, they kind of alluded to a few different theories in that book. Apparently his masseuse mentioned an anecdote that he, that Manley Hall had claimed that he, or kind of joked that he was the reincarnation of Madame Blavatsky. Um, that one doesn't ring quite as true to me. I mean, she was super encyclopedic and brilliant, but... Uh, uh, other times he told a few different, one or two or three people that he was, uh, or suggested that he was reincarnated from Albert Pike, the Masonic uh, Scottish Rite, um, famous writer of Morals and Dogma, kind of controversial these days for his kind of somewhat racist things. I mean, by those standards, I don't know if it's racist, but he was, Albert Pike was a pretty brilliant figure in a way that I don't know how well he'd go over these days. But anyways, his, his work was the, the Morals and Dogma, which really, referred to all these ancient teachings and ancient cultures. So it almost seems like Manley Hall's secret teaching book kind of provides a background for the context that uh, Albert Pike was writing from. Plus, also Albert Pike was over six feet high and had a apparently pretty brilliant mind, too, and very adventurous life, a bit like Hall, um, and, uh, and was himself about 300 pounds. It had some real similar physical features, too, um, just, okay, side side anecdote there, but uh, uh, let's see, what else about Hall? Um, yeah, again, 8,000-some lectures and did about 150 books and essays. That, um, that's all right. Wife, I, I didn't want to put you on the spot. So let's let's move into the, the text itself. You know, so well, I just thought, if it's cool, one more thing I wanted to say about his life is his second wife. Yeah. Just to tie that up. His second wife was, uh, I think, a big fan of his, and she was married at the time. And uh, she was obviously just totally enamored of Manly Hall and her what soon-to-be ex-husband would refer to him as Manly P. Hall with two E's after the P. 
and uh, so he was not always entirely liked, but uh, um, but but she married him, and uh, her name was uh, Marie Swikert Bauer, um, and she was obsessed with uh, Francis Bacon, and at one time led this whole quest to find Francis Bacon's secret tomb or burial room somewhere in, or his, yeah, hidden manuscript burial room that she thought I think was in America, and that it would have. I think secrets, I forget if it was about Atlantis or some Shakespearean evidence to show who Francis Bacon was definitively Shakespeare and all that kind of stuff. So she was, she was apparently very obsessed and, uh, and in some ways more controversial than Hall himself. Um, and yeah, the Bacon thing was an obsession for her throughout her life. She lived, she, uh, lived longer than Hall by a little bit and lived over, to be over a hundred actually passed away in 2005, I think. Um, but an interesting little sync note on, her is, again, her last name was Bauer, B-A-U-E-R, like the character in the 24 series. And she was actually born on June 24. And Bauer, I always think of the dog star. Um, the character in 24 totally resonates with dog star stuff, but that's another topic. Um, and uh, June 24, I think June 23rd is a big traditional St. John the Baptist day in Europe, and it ties a lot into Sirius's patterns in the sky, too. So just a weird Sirius thing I ended up there. But okay, so back to the book itself. I'm ready for that if you are. <laughs> uh, now you've got me, <laughs> you've got me sidetracked. I'm thinking about uh, Bacon because yeah, that's a chapter that I don't think that we're gonna make t- make it to in this series, and obviously that's one of those conspiracy theories that perhaps Bacon was actually Shakespeare. Does he mention that? Manly Hall? Yeah. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, like, in the early versions of the book, I'm not sure about... I think you have the Reader's Digest, the Mitch Horowitz kind of smaller one. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know um, that it's so in, smaller. It's just, I think it's... Uh, it's well, uh, in book shorter, size. I guess. Yeah, yeah. It's like made like a normal book. Um, so in the earlier editions, I have... The one I have is black and white. Actually, it doesn't have this transparent layover. I don't know if it ever did. But on the Bacon chapter, or the chapter about the European initiates, I think it's one of the last two or three chapters, um, it has a picture of either Shakespeare or Bacon and it has an overlay of the other one in a transparency and shows how their face is almost the exact same. Um, oh, so yeah, that that's is... a pretty major focus of the chapter. Yeah, do you think he, he is the one who came up with that conspiracy theory? No, by no means. It was really popular back then. A lot of authors were writing on it, really far out stuff about all these alleged codes and numbers and letter shape differences in the Shakespearean text. But I mean, I'm quite convinced of Shakespeare, the Stratfordian theory that Shakespeare wrote the Shakespearean plays. From everything I've read, it seems pretty ridiculous. So I can't say I've read a strictly Stratfordian book, but I've read a lot of books on the theory of Shakespeare that cover all different perspectives. And as far as I can tell, Bacon is by far the most convincing one. I mean, that movie Anonymous came out a couple of years ago. Uh, was more the Oxfordian view that the Earl of Oxford wrote Shakespeare, and they pretty much cut Bacon entirely out of the movie, even though he would have been there throughout it. So it could be a controversial field, but I mean... As far as I've seen, Bacon just wipes out everyone else in terms of the evidence pointing to him. And I don't know that tool by memory. I have a person or two that I know who's one of the, probably one of the, some of the top world experts on the Bacon perspective and the Shakespeare authorship question in general. So if you want me to send one of them your way, that might be into that. Um, but yeah, in the Bacon-related chapter, though, I think it is the Emissaries and Initiates of the Western Mysteries chapter. So it talks about people like St. Germain and Cagliostro also. But the Bacon one, I think, even suggests that Bacon was also the true author of the the Rosicrucian Manifestos, the three big Rosicrucian writings that came out in, I think, Germany first and then circulated all around Europe and created that whole uproar about Rosicrucianism. Um, Usually they're attributed to, uh, what's his name, Johannes Andre Valentine, who most likely was at least the author of the third Rosicrucian Manifesto, The Chemical Marriage of Christian Rosencruz. But then Hoffman actually suggests that, that Andre himself was actually Bacon disguised and he points out various little symbols in Andre's writings and even facial similarities and things. So Hall seems to be saying that Bacon was most everybody. <laughs> Except for, I don't know if he directly says that he was St. Germain, which is often a claim in the esoteric fields about St. Germain, the alleged immortal who showed up later. The note that I wrote down on my sheet as, as I'm preparing for this is this is a mystery. And so, you know, that that's the heart of Manly P. Hall, I think that there's an artifact and that the truth is in that artifact. You just need to decode it. The artifact being this book? 
whatever it is, each 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 chapter addresses some other aspect or other artifact. And so the chapter that you chose, and I don't know that I said it correct, but the Bemben Table of Isis. That's as good as I could guess. Yeah, the the intro you did on that was really good. I mean, I think that was from the book, but uh, that that was a pretty good in covering of it. It's. But could you uh, give you us just a little it. bit of background about this? I mean, so why why this chapter? And then tell us about the actual table slash tablet. I, uh, for me, I think I chose the chapter because well, there's many books like I said that many chapters in the book that I haven't read, but this one always stood out in my mind because I hadn't heard about it in any other context yet. Like the Emerald Tablet Tablet of Hermes Trismegistus is such a famous one you hear mentioned everywhere. Um, and I have read that. It's such a short tablet. But this one I knew nothing about, really, so I always meant to read it, and I, I figured this would be a good excuse to force me to read it. Um, and I can, looking into it, I can see why I never read it thoroughly. It was a very abstruse chapter, very, uh, I guess esoteric is the right word, but very complex and tough to glean any definite meaning from. I'm thinking that it's something that Manly Hall and his world travels ran into, and he was fascinated by it. That's why he made a chapter about it. But the first page or two in very small print it's pretty much all about the history of people trying to interpret this tablet. And just to give it a brief description, um, it's this rectangular tablet that has three main rows, and each of those rows is populated by several Egyptian deities. And the center is a, a throne uh, inhabited by, uh, who I, I think he says is Isis, but to me she looks a lot more like Hathor because of the cow horns and there's a beetle on her head. Isis almost always has a little uh, stair-like chair on top of her head, a throne. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know, looking at it myself, I don't know if I could make head or tails of it. It's, I recognize a lot of the deities, and some of them I don't recognize. And then they're surrounded by a border of even more complex symbols, and it's just like on and on and on, in-depth symbolism. For me, I'd have to really look in, in depth to Egyptian mythology and hieroglyphs to begin to understand this. He, he later in the chapter, after going through the history of how it was attempted to be translated by Eliphas Levy and... Uh, uh, Athanasius Kircher, the Jesuit esoteric scholar. Right, um, and I took my quotes from the introduction from it's a hodgepodge of what various people had to say about it, whether it's Levy, uh, Kircher, or uh, someone else. Uh, maybe yeah. Wait. Or, it seems like every uh, <laughs> a lot of the heavies have speculated about this thing. Yeah, the ones who were back, big back in the late 1800s and early 1900s, um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm gonna, I, I have to admit, I didn't really get to a point where I felt like I really grasped it. It seemed like a lot of the central metaphysical interpretation was that of the three main rows of the tablet, there's, uh, he claimed seven deities in each of those uh, rows, but I, it seems to me there's more than seven deities on some of those. But he, anyways, compares those deities to somewhat to the tree of life structure of the, there being the three supernal, uh, the tr three, the triad, the supernal triad on top of the tree, the uh, Keter and Hokma and Pina, it, we can't really visibly see. So they're like the central point emanating these seven. And the seven being these, the seven deities that are shown being equivalent to the seven sephiroth, um, that are the more material manifestation of the tree, or relatively material manifestation of the tree that humans can attain some realization of. Um, and then he talks about different deities being equivalent, whether it's Thoth being equivalent to Hermes or Mercury, um, and, uh, and Nephthys being equivalent to someone else. So, yeah, again, very esoteric, very dependent. Understanding what he's even writing depends a lot on having some good background in Egyptian and uh, Greco-Roman mythology. Um, I don't know, to be honest, I, I know that was my original goal to present details on this tablet, but I don't know if it's entirely... Well, it's Worth funny it because it. there's so much speculation about – so obviously there's a lot of stuff going on in this yeah. depiction of whatever it is. And Manly P. Hall definitely thinks it's it's the entire universe encoded. You know, it goes the, the yeah. whole it's, – it's the tree, the seed and the tree. It's all there. But then he ends the chapter by saying – you know, another guy basically says it could be a really pretty coffee table. Yeah, <laughs> or at least an altar or something. I mean, it definitely is. Yeah, like a like someone made it as an art piece in a devotion to a god or something. What's fascinating to me, though, is it's real. It's a real artifact, as far as I can tell. 
You know, when you do a little bit of research about it, you know, it has a historicity, I guess. You know, so it's called the the Bemben table because Cardinal Bembo is the one who took it out of Rome in like uh, before before the sack of Rome, sometime in the 1500s or some something to that effect. Uh, 1527 after the sack of Rome. Um, but so it's floated around and then it's popped up in various places and then it, it's in a gallery in Italy today. But when you Google it, you can't all the all the links point you back to mainly P. Hall. It's it, that's the strange thing huh. to me that that the history that has accumulated since then is actually more dense or louder than the actual artifact itself at this point. Yeah, it could be kind of an accidental thing that it became popular. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I don't know if I would call it entirely worthwhile for the average person to study. If someone's a real scholar of these fields, it could be could yield some viable things, but it seems like it's there's more direct ways to get whatever it's conveying, especially in our modern context, because Egyptian right. things are obviously interesting. Right. And I so, find that Kabbalah is pretty This is like even more removed. I mean, and I guess that's one of the things that we should tell the listeners. It It's basically, it's hieroglyphics. And so a lot of the early people thought that it was Egyptian. And now they're thinking that it's probably Roman in the style of Egyptian. And then the, the hieroglyphics may be nonsense. But it still may encode meaning. It's just symbolically not this this the kind of um, language that the the Egyptians were using. Yeah, it's uh yeah one of those artifacts is a little out of place. I don't think Hall actually learned hieroglyphics. Maybe he did. I wouldn't be entirely surprised. But uh. right. But so to me, that is the essence of this book. On some level, that there's a mystery. And that if we go into that mystery, the truth is in there if we just uncode the symbols. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it may not be worth the work, though. <laughs> okay, so this might be one of those chapters that we advise our listeners to skip. Yeah, unless they just want a real brain challenge, brain pain thing. But uh, right, uh, right. It's, and that's, it is kind of symbolic of the book, but... <laughs> Well, another chapter you were interested in is yeah. is the elements. That's a much more accessible, potentially more useful chapter. I think it's right after the, or right before the chapter on ceremonial magic, probably because it relates to them in lots of ways. And I think, as I mentioned, uh, the reason that that kind of draws me right now is that uh, years ago I started a business centered on garden gnomes. And as you, listeners are probably familiar of the four elements, Garden, I mean, not garden gnomes, but gnomes in general, are seen as the main inhabitants of the realm of Earth. Um, so in this chapter, the elements and their inhabitants, Hall gets into how there's four classical elements, I think originally enumerated by uh, Empedocles and then more popularized by Aristotle, um, and that they have a physical and a metaphysical etheric counterparts. So they're basically a fire. I mean, starting at the base, uh, earth, then water, then air, then fire. And I think that's usually the way they're stacked in the Western perspective, kind of a hierarchy of elements, the most solid to the most ethereal. Um, China and I think Tibet have some other cool takes on that, but I probably shouldn't go into that right now. Um, so in short, though, the main inhabitants of the ethereal equivalents of these rooms or these realms are, or these elements, are again gnomes in the earth level, and their gnomes are thought to be stubborn and know about where treasure is hidden, so they have all those earth equivalents. And then uh, undines, or otherwise, other, other, in other words, mermaids, are the water equivalent. Um, their equivalent is sylphs, or what we usually call fairies, little winged, pretty chicks in uh, dresses and flying around. And then uh, the fire realm is inhabited by salamanders, which are often pictured as actual salamander-like lizards. But they're also, I think, uh, and he does talk about Paracelsus being the main person putting forth this idea of the elements inhabitants. But in the Paracelsus illustration, I think they're, the salamanders are pictured as these uh, lion-headed or human-faced, lion-bodied 
and bearded and winged creatures. So they're more like a, I don't know, lion or maybe from my D&D days, like a manticore or something. Um, and amidst, amidst of lots of flame with a snake's head on their tail, holding a sword even. So yeah, the, the fire element can get kind of weird. But I think the idea is that these are the main main beings inhabiting those elements. And I'm sure there's other equivalent beings. I think in uh, Arabic traditions, the genies or jinn are, there's four divisions of those as well. Like the one that Robin Williams played, the blue one would be the water genie. Yeah. Um, anyways, that's... And that's the kind of the, the what I took from that too is that there is so in the material there's the spirit of the material which itself exists although it doesn't necessarily exist on the material plane it does. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's right next to and they're kind of they're kind of the halfway realm between the pure spiritual and the pure physical. He talks about how elementals may have been considered gods at some point or that God may be something totally different. There's really powerful, impressive elementals like Socrates or Socrates Diamond. Um, so yeah, there's middle realm, but they're pretty interesting. I think, I mean, reading accounts about ayahuasca, like the classic book Ayahuasca Visions, actually has a picture where the author describes meeting a lot of gnomes, but they're all different colorful gnomes, but they do have the pointed hat thing. And other fairies and things are described in Ayahuasca Visions. I mean, Ayahuasca, you meet all these things that are so so real and so intense that I think it does kind of open one's eyes to those elemental realms and beyond. So I would argue there is some real validity to these spirits. Whether they uh, look gnome-like, literally, I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if they often do take those forms. Mermaids being you know, half fish and being all fluid in the water makes a lot of sense to me, too. I don't know, but I'm kind of a weirdo that way, I guess. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so ceremonial magicians work with beings in these different realms, uh, like in the basic banishing ritual, the pentagram, the classic Western kind of foundational ritual to clear the space. You work with the four angels of the different elements, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, yeah, fun stuff. It's much more, it's a much easier chapter to grasp anyway. He, he also compares the four elements to the some primary elements of chemistry. You know, I think carbon is earth, uh, Hydrogen is water, oxygen is air, and nitrogen is fire, um, and talks about those as kind of modern scientific equivalents of the classic four elements. So one of the thoughts that I had, and we're we're really winding down now, though, is that the quadrivium uh, refers to the the material sciences, and I'm not going to be able to name them, but it's ge- geometry, music, something else. Economy. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah. The trivium refers to the intellectual sciences. And so, like, in my mind, these are the sciences that can affect material through your intellectual will, say. Hmm. So, grammar, rhetoric, and something else. What is it? Logic. <laughs> logic, yes. And so, but the thing, one of the, one of the numbers that really stands, so Joseph Campbell called the number 432, the number of the goddess, and I took it, you know, so I took it a step farther and thought that that somehow that's the architecture of the universe. But I was wondering about, so that would leave, and so mainly P. Hall is all about these three, you know, the the, kind of the soul, mind, body aspect of reality. What do you think a science of the soul would be? And then taking that, you know, so like quadrivium, trivium, and, and then I'm thinking of, you know, the number two, somehow the yin and the yang, the uh, the caduceus snakes, the DNA, your mom and your pop, you know. What do you yeah. think a science of the soul should be called? That is a big question. I mean, I'm, 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 I don't know. I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of sums up the whole quest in some ways. Uh, I'm, I'm, with the Keanu Project, as I get back to that, in the later chapters, I try to kind of sum up how the sacred geometry ties into other things. Um, and that's kind of one of my, been one of my life goals for a while is to figure out some kind of more comprehensive science of the soul. Um, I think like, you know, Buddhism has the eightfold path, but I think nowadays it would have a few more aspects, a few more folds in that path, um, just by what we have access to in different world circumstances. Yeah, I don't know, that one I don't feel up for tackling right now because <laughs> what would be a good name for it? And, Pentavium, <laughs> the Octavium, du- Duodenum. What is that's the <laughs> body part? That's the top part of the small intestine, I think. Um, yeah, well, I mean, the the trivium and quadrivium by themselves 
already have a duality in that sense because it is the kind of mind-body split that way. Yeah, I don't know. That's That would be a fun thing to get into someday, but uh, I think we might be stretching a bit to try to really encompass that fully right now. Um, I don't know if you'd want me to try to get into my pers- some of my personal gnome things in terms of the whole el- elemental aspect of things, or if we have time for that. Uh, well, we're, we're, I forgot to stop. The clock did not start, and so we're... We're, I think we're oh. running on fumes. Um, okay. Tell no us worries. how your personal gnome sync somehow intersects with the secret teachings. Yeah. Well, what, um, what are the secret teachings of Boji? Uh, the gnome thing I've done more in my own, in a somewhat different personal incarnation, but uh, uh, so it doesn't have a direct Keanu-Boji connection, but it is interesting in the sense that I made Meditating gnomes is one of my main items. Garden ohms, you know, kind of a bad pun. They're all pun-based gnomes, but they try to elevate gnome, the gnome world. So I, I like to think that I am actually affecting the real etheric gnomes through these garden gnomes. So there are a lot of meditating gnomes, different versions of those, and there's a gnome Chomsky is what kind of started it all. So it's a very intellectual gnome. And my personal thoughts on Chomsky vary a lot. I, I appreciate a lot of what he does, but as people like James Corbett and others have pointed out, there's some holes in his presentation of some aspects of reality. And I'd agree with that. Um, but, uh, yeah, so my gnomes lately, the sync that's really, I don't know if it would exactly be called a sync, but six years ago is when I got my gnome website really going and was right on the edge of total financial collapse. And then I got a really bad flu for a whole week, just sleeping the whole time. But then when I woke up, there was these surprise gnome orders and just started to flood in in the week or two after that. And it was right before Christmas, so it was an intense rush of gnomes. And then a few weeks ago, I came down with the flu again and got sick for a whole two weeks. And then the exact same thing happened. After like five years of hardly any gnome orders, suddenly there was even an even huger flood of gnome orders. Apparently, apparently the, the gnome Chomsky got uh, popular on a few websites and then it went all around Facebook. So that was one weird gnome sync. And there has been other weird things. Like when I was first getting to the gnomes, the gnomes again are tied to the earth element, but also tied into, I guess, wealth, business and wealth and thing, wealth accumulation because it's all about that earthy survival aspect of things. So when I first got into making the gnomes, I found myself listening to all these audiobooks on business and things and how to set up uh, companies and whatnot and invest. I never really followed up much of that advice, but it was interesting that it tied in so well with uh, working with these spirits of the earth element. Um, That's kind of when uh, the ghost of Robert Anton Wilson apparently started to talk to me for a month or so after he was dead and encouraged me to work on that Keanu-related thing because of the whole serious connection. Again, a whole other topic, but it took me away from that potential business aspect of the gnomes and focused on that kind of mission. Um, yeah, I guess that's not a whole lot of sinks, but the gnome thing has just had weird ways of the orders turning up at just the right time and connecting to interesting people and even some connection to Chomsky himself. Um, just... Yeah, part of the joke, of course, in the Noam Chomsky is that Noam Chomsky talks about all these super intellectual and serious and tragic world issues where garden gnomes are just the ridiculous things in the garden, so it kind of melded those two worlds. That was perfect. Thank you. That was 42 Minutes. Thanks, Ian. You've been listening to Boji on SyncBook Radio, a production of SyncBook.com. Information about the work of Boji can be found at KeanuCo.com. And what is the Gnome website? Oh, uh, just say gnome.net if you want to check it out. And is that G-N-O-M-E? Exactly. Perfect. Let me just say no. For more information about the sync book, our guests, check out past shows, or subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website at 42minutes.com. Thanks so much. And remember, only God can judge you. Forget the haters, because somebody loves you.
club Remember only God can judge you Forget the haters cause somebody loves ya And everyone in line for the bathroom Trying to get a line in the bathroom We are so turned up, yeah so turned up We can love who we want to, it's 